Our podcast this week is brought to you by Masa Israel. If you have a high school junior or senior in your life, congratulations. They can now receive anywhere from $200 to $2,000 towards a life-changing gap year adventure in Israel with Masa Israel Journey. In fact, we did a cover story on them, and it's really highly recommended. It's one of the best programs uh, for Israel. Masa's selection of gap year experiences ranges from secular to religious, high-tech to the arts, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and everything in between. They can volunteer, work, study, or intern while traveling the country, exploring their passions, and living as a local. To claim a scholarship, have your student go to masaisrael.org slash gap year. That's M-A-S-A Israel.org slash gap year. All one word. No spaces. All right, this is David Suisa. Welcome to my podcast. Haley Seufer is in the house, the very first executive director of the Washington-based Jewish Democratic Council of America. Welcome, Haley. Thank you so much for having me. So what is this Democratic Council of America? Our organization was founded in 2017 after Charlottesville to serve as the voice of Jewish Democrats when we we noticed there was a void. Uh, there was a vacuum of voices responding to neo-Nazis marching in our streets and a president who equated them with those peacefully protesting them. And we wanted to serve as the voice of Jewish pro-Israel and democratic values and ensure that those voices were being heard in order to bring about political change. We played a critical role in the 2018 midterm elections, supporting candidates who share our values and helped to flip 28 seats from red to blue. 84% of our candidates won and we're going to do even more in 2020 to support Democrats. So your background is very much with the Democratic Party, right? You were with Kamala Harris and so forth. I mean, this is your life uh, with the Democratic Party in a number of different uh, capacities. And um, do you have any friends who are on the other side? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm curious Absolutely. about that. Because, you know, you, you're very political. I mean, it's like your whole job has to do with promoting the Democratic Party from a Jewish lens, right? And I'm, I'm not in that position. I don't consider myself a political animal, maybe because I'm a journalist, so I like to always look at both sides of the, the picture. And But you are really a political person. And I, th does it ever get uncomfortable? Do you have family members who don't share your views? Tell me how that works. Well, I don't actually define myself solely as a political person. I, well, I consider no, what I mean, myself the as... The Democratic Party, you will not... If, if the Democratic Party does something wrong, you're not inclined to, like, criticize it, although I've seen you have done it. We have. You have, and I've, we have. I've, I've when, seen that. When Democrats, uh, like Ilhan Omar, for example, uh, say things that, that we, uh, we don't agree with, we will denounce it. Uh, and we did that during the election as well with candidates. Um, but to go back to your question, and I'm happy to answer it, you know, we are a values-driven organization. We're giving voice to Jewish values, and we feel that it is the Democratic Party that is aligned with those values and that currently the Republican Party, as controlled by Trump, is 
is uh, you know, promoting policies that are antithetical to those values. But I have friends of mine who say that the conservative movement also has some really deep Jewish values. For example, the value of taking personal responsibility is seems to be more aligned with conservative. So I've, I've, I've always been fascinated by everybody wants to sort of own Jewish values. I think that... Um, I think it's important to have respect for those on the other side. And certainly to answer your question, I do have friends that are Republicans. I worked in Congress for four different members going back to 2002. And something that's really important, perhaps the president doesn't understand this, that in order to get things done on Capitol Hill and in Washington in general, you have to work with members of the other mm -hmm. party. And those that I am really friends with, uh, who happen to be Republicans, we, we do see eye to eye on a lot of issues, mostly regarding national security. Um, and, you but know, when I, you don't see eye to eye on an issue, how do you handle? Well, I think that? on a lot of domestic policy issues, you know, we don't see eye to eye. But of course, there there has to be respect. Like for mm -hmm. example, we as an organization uh, deeply respected and um, mourned the loss of John McCain. Here you had a principled, uh, you know, not only leader in the Senate, but someone who who really did represent uh, what we believe to be core American values and, and leadership. And we mourn that loss. We mourn the loss of, of George uh, George Bush. Uh, we, you know... The second George Bush? <laughs> uh, President Bush, who, who passed away earlier this year. But we, oh, okay. we have, you know, we have definitely uh, taken a position, uh, you know, with regard to Israel, for example, where we're talking about the importance of bipartisan support for Israel. We don't want to see this relationship politicized. So again, it's not just about politics. It's not politics that defines us. It's really values. And one such value is the importance of bipartisanship regarding the U.S.-Israel relationship. Um, so to answer your question, yes, I have friends who are Republicans, uh, and it's essential to being successful in Washington. You, of course, have to have those ties, and you have to understand the other side and where they're coming from, and I hope they do the same for us. Are, are you concerned that the Democratic Party, especially when I see some of this new, uh, the, the, the candidates, uh, that they're moving too far left, uh, that you know, they might sort of turn off some of those crucial independents that they're going to need in 2020 to win back the White House? So as we've seen in previous elections, especially the 2016 election, that in order in order to win, uh, you, you will have to win independence. There's no question. We, mm -hmm. are, we are just a purple country right now. And even if you look at the margin by which so many of those House seats were flipped to blue, uh, it was it was those independent voters mm -hmm. that actually delivered the House in many ways for Democrats because, yes, there were many, many seats that flipped, but those were really close races. Mm -hmm. uh, so we can't take that for granted, and you do have to appeal to independents. This is a very crowded field we have of Democratic candidates, uh, you know, perhaps the most crowded we've seen, especially when we're looking at those who are viable, because there's not one candidate at this point that I would say is... Uh, clearly in the lead. They are, there is a, a really large group that all seem to be great candidates. And in just a few weeks, Mayor Pete. Mayor Pete is remarkable. So you have so many like that who have um, really distinct, uh, what I would consider to be, um, you know, voices of leadership and messages and, and really interesting personal narratives like Mayor Pete's, but there are so many others. Uh, 
And in order for some to stand out, you know, you do have policies that are representing a range of views. And frankly, that's how they're going to distinguish themselves. This is part of this primary process. They are going to have policies, if they all sounded alike, uh, then how could we choose? Well, I've seen kind of, I'm going to push back politely on that because I've, I've noticed that um, more, a lot of sameness in this, for example, the, the Green New Deal or the New Green Deal, which is really very leftist in many ways. And I find a lot of the candidates feel obligated to, to kind of show support for it. I think Mayor Pete is the only one that I've seen that's really kind of tried to stand out. But everything else seems to be in the Bernie Sanders world, which is moving more and more to the left. And I'm concerned that they're going too far left and they're going to, you know, it's going to hurt I them. Think, I think we're still in this early stage early. of the candidates introducing themselves, right? You have and also to during the, the, the primaries, it's very much about the base. It is, and they have to distinguish themselves. And I think that the way that they're doing it, um, Mayor Pete's a good example because he's just been thrust into the spotlight in the past week or two. Can, uh, you, can you pronounce his last name, please? Buttigieg. Bu- no, bu- Buttigieg. Buttigieg. <laughs> there we go. Oh, my God. Buttigieg. Talk about branding. But Pete. that... <laughs> What are you going to do? <laughs> Listen, we can just call him yeah. Mayor Pete Everton. I know. Uh, so I think everybody is at this stage introducing themselves to voters. And part of that, perhaps that's why Biden skipped this stage, because everyone knows him. But, you know, part of that introduction is trying to distinguish themselves. I think the way that they've been distinguishing themselves at this point is really with their personal narratives, their personal mm-hmm. stories, their stump speeches, which are distinct. The policies will come. They will define the policies that they are, are going to uh, you know, amplify and represent on the campaign trail as we go. And we'll see that really uh, with the, the uh, debates that are coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think at this early stage, they're, they're really just trying to define themselves by their own personal narratives. And it's really been fascinating to watch. And one of them you know very well, Kamala Harris. You worked with her. I do. Yeah. I do. Are you still now. in touch with her? Uh, I, I am definitely in touch with uh, with her, her team, and frankly, all of the Democratic candidates' teams. We are in touch with them, uh, ensuring that they hear uh, the views and priorities of Jewish Democrats. Uh, we want to ensure that issues of importance to Jewish Democrats, whether it is the rise of anti-Semitism in our country during this administration in the past two years, or uh, the issue of Israel, remain issues that you know Democrats continue to exercise leadership on and that we these are bipartisan issues. The last thing we want to mm-hmm. see is a division among Democrats with regard to support of Israel. Is, is it difficult for you, Haley? I mean, so many things happen uh, in from the government of Israel, the especially recently the decision from uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, the declaration that he's going to do some annexing settlements, the nation-state law from last year, and so many other things that you know are deeply offensive to liberal Jews. Does that make it difficult for you to promote Israel with democratic among the democratic leaders that you work with? So the short answer is no, because... You know, the U.S.-Israel relationship, which has endured uh, over 70 years and many presidents and many prime ministers, really shouldn't be politicized and really shouldn't be personalized. And what we saw President Trump do on Saturday in his speech at the Venetian with the Republican Jewish Coalition was both. 
He's trying to politicize this relationship. He's trying to personalize it, make it all about him and Prime Minister Netanyahu. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the truth is leaders come and go. We don't even know who's going to be prime minister in Israel. The election is less than 24 hours. Let's not assume. Let's let the Israeli people vote and let's ensure that we acknowledge the distinction between the Israeli electorate and the American Jewish electorate because it's deserving of a distinction, even though the president seems to have ignored it or uh, is perhaps not aware of that distinction because uh, he did uh, conflate the two. But, you know, it's it's important that we continue to ensure the relationship supersedes politics. And in terms of the policies of the current Israeli government, uh, this, these are not necessarily policies uh, that even Republicans have fully embraced. Uh, so, for example, when you had Netanyahu's aligning with this very far-right extremist party, you saw uh, a range of Jewish organizations on the right and on the left uh, to include APAC, for example, uh, call it out as something that they didn't they didn't think was in Israel's best interest. That was unprecedented. Um, with regard to many of the issues uh, currently um, that we see from from this Israeli government, keeping in mind this is full election mode with less than twenty four hours to go, uh, you know. There are some concerns, and those concerns are not unique specifically to Democrats. These are concerns of, of Americans on, on both sides of the aisle. Does, it, does it hurt you personally? I know you're a very big supporter of Israel. You spent a year in Israel. You studied, I think, University of Tel Aviv. I did, You yeah. were raised as an Israel lover, Zionist, all that good stuff. Uh, but you're also a real great liberal. Does it, does it hurt you personally when you see stuff happening in Israel, policies, uh, that you feel go counter to the Israel's liberal values? So I was raised with a, a very strong uh, identification as a Jewish American, and one such way that my parents, I grew up in a small Jewish community, one such way Where that... Where was this? In East Lansing, Michigan, mm -hmm. uh, home of Congresswoman Alyssa Slacken as well, also a Jew from that area, but we are, <laughs> we are two of very few of them. Um, one of the ways that uh, one of the ways that my parents wanted to forge those ties was by sending me to Israel at a young age. Uh, I returned to um, to study at Tel Aviv uh, in in college, and I returned again to intern at the U.S. Embassy, which was then located in Tel Aviv. Uh, I I forged those ties, and actually, it it became kind of the basis of my career because I, I developed an interest not just in the, the ties between the United States and Israel, but frankly in Middle East uh, politics in general and in U.S. policy in the, in the region. That's what I ultimately studied and what I focused on as a national security advisor. Um, with regard to what pains me, uh, what pains me the most about what is currently happening is actually uh, what I see coming from, from Trump. Because I see myself first and foremost as an American. And as an American Jew, to hear him, uh, you know, or even see on his Twitter feed what I consider to be um, a real assault on truth and decency, uh, uh, saying things like Democrats don't support Jews, or Democrats are anti-Semitic, or Democrats don't support Israel, which is just patently false and false and false. Uh, and uh, to see him politicize what is a, a really sacred relationship, again, that has, has endured decades and should not be politicized and should not be personalized, 
that actually does pain me, and that is something that we as an organization are fighting back against. But when Israel's current government does implement policies that are not aligned with our values, so whether it was enactment of the nation-state law or the recent alignment with, uh, with this extremist party or even previously with regard to the treatment of African migrants, uh, our organization has spoken out because we're going to call out when we see something that is not aligned with our values, whether it's here or in Israel or another country, we're going to call it out. When we see something that's not aligned with our values, whether it comes from Democrats or Republicans, we're going to call it out. And what I see happening today in, in the United States is, is a real hypocrisy on the Republican side. Because while we're calling it out when it comes from one of our own, like we saw with Omar or Tlaib in recent months, they are failing to do so when it comes from one of their own. Like just two weeks ago, you had a Republican congressman from Alabama, Mo Brooks, reading from Mein Kampf on the House floor, calling us Democrats Nazis, saying things that one could never imagine to be said by any member of Congress, and certainly not without some serious repercussions. There was complete silence from Republicans. Even those that expressed such outrage to hear Representative Tlaib uh, in January invoke uh, accusations of dual loyalty or Representative Omar, uh, you know, invoke you know, anti-Semitic tropes such as talking about so-called Jewish influence with regard to money and political influence, you know, to, to be quiet when the president himself has invoked the same tropes over, over the period of many years. Uh, again, this is hypocrisy. So I am deeply concerned and and pain, frankly, by what I see as uh, the attempt on the Republican side to politicize not only support of Israel, but also the rise of anti-Semitism in our country. Was it difficult for you to criticize the Democratic uh, politicians like Omar and Tlaib? Was that difficult? No. Mm -hmm. No, it wasn't. Uh, and our criticism of them uh, predates their, their arrival in Congress. Mm -hmm. When, uh, as candidates, uh, going back to August of 2018, Rashida Tlaib uh, gave an interview in August where she said she was not going to support full military funding for Israel. She said she questioned that support. She said she didn't support a two-state solution. We called her out then, so mm -hmm. we don't we don't share that view, and we we found that unacceptable. Going back to Rish, uh, Ilhan Omar had tweeted in 2012 that the world was hypnotized by Israel, and we sensed we sensed that there there may be some. Um, some views behind that that were obviously quite misaligned with where we were, but we were concerned about a degree of anti-Semitism. We were concerned that, you know, to, to believe such a view or to, to articulate such a view even years ago, uh, you know, led us to, to really be concerned about where she was going to be on these issues. Uh, it was without hesitation that we condemned them during the, during the campaign and then certainly when they repeated similar things in Congress. So no, we're going to call it out wherever we see it, whether it's on the right or the left. You know, my thinking has evolved on, when I hear these sort of anti-Semitic statements, uh, very much anti-Israel statements, is it really doesn't help the Palestinians. Uh, so much of this anti-Israel, anti-Jewish energy, first of all, has not hurt Israel, if you look at how Israel is thriving as the economy in a country and so forth. And I wrote a piece recently uh, saying, like, the, the BDS movement has done nothing for the Palestinians. And even when you get all the criticism, whether it's from Ilan Omar or Rashid Tlaib, it's still under the guise of let's just bash Israel 
and perpetuate the victimhood status of Palestinians, assume they have no agency, and stay there as victims who can't take more control of their situation. So there's something insidious about that in terms of it doesn't really help the Palestinians. Well, I think it's important not to conflate two things. Uh, one is a view on Israel that clearly uh, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, uh, mostly due to their own, I think, identity politics, one is a Palestinian, one is a Somali refugee, that they have, right? right. And they are entitled to their views Absolutely. on politics. But there is a way that they should be discussing that if they feel the need to do so that does not invoke what is a separate issue, and mm. that is anti-Semitism. Correct. There's no statement of policies, you know, like the, the Israeli policies. It's rarely that. It's still under that big picture of sort of that anti-Israel thing that I always find suspect. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and I think this well, is why they can't reach Jews with, with the message because they don't focus on policy I, disagreements, I think you know. Listen, I don't want to overstate their role either in the Democratic Party. Keep in mind the that the Jews they are, overstate it. Well, Have you noticed? Let I not this Jew, okay? <laughs> not this Jew. So let's let's be clear. They are two two of 62. 62 freshman Democrats. I mentioned one, Alyssa Slotkin, for example. There are so many others. We you forget hear how you many Democrats Katie love Hill, Israel. Katie Porter. I know. As freshmen, right? Don't yeah. overemphasize the role of, of those two. Uh, they have said things that we strongly disagree with, but what about the things that the other 60 have said? Uh, because the fact of the matter is you, you don't we don't talk about it because we agree. And you know, there are There's a lot a more remarkable, support absolutely for Israel and the Democratic Party absolutely. than you hear in the media. Absolutely. Is that correct? Absolutely. So I reject the premise that, you know, somehow that these and also they, they don't have the ability to really influence policy on Israel. Tlaib is not on the Foreign Affairs Committee. Omar is. She's on the Africa subcommittee. She's not on the Middle East subcommittee. Either way, the committee itself is chaired by Elliot Engel. There's no question about where he stands on Israel. The Appropriations Committee that's going to control the aid is chaired by Nita Lowy. We, there's no question about where she stands. Look at our leadership, Steny Hoyer, Nancy Pelosi. The Democratic Party strongly stands with Israel. And the fact that two Two freshmen who have now been there a total of three months, uh, the idea that somehow they would change the, the the party on this issue is just patently false. I think there's a super uh, thin skin, short fuse in America generally for anything that smacks of anti-Semitism, and we have a tendency to really blow it out of proportion. And I think we've really done that. Well, but I also case. think that there has been a degree of a false narrative here. I mean, for example... There was one member of Congress who held a bill last year that would have authorized the 10-year Memorandum of Understanding, $38 billion military aid package between the United States and Israel that has been so critical to Israel's security to include funding for the Iron Dome and other important uh, defense items. Do you know who that was who held it? Blocked it. Who? He blocked it. Oh. It's a he. Gave you a hint. Mm. You tell me. Republican Rand Paul, mm -hmm. senator from Kentucky. Oh, right. He's the anti sort of Whatever he is, he's a Republican. Right. right. He's Did a... anyone talk about that? Because every single Democrat supported it. There was unanimous support. In fact, they weren't even going to vote on it because it was so non-controversial. Of right. course, everyone in the Senate was going to just let it go through. It had unanimously gone through the House. A Republican opposed it. 
Right. Did but anyone... he's, he's an outlier. He's an incorrigible isolationist. He doesn't believe in... Okay, let's know, call him an outlier. Yeah. So what is, what is you know, on, on issues related to Israel, why is it that... Uh, but that's that security Rashida agreement. Rashida Tlaib or Ilhan Omar are now being perceived as speaking for the Democratic Party. I would also call them outliers. But just as I would not say to my Republican friends that Rand Paul represents their views on Israel or that Steve King represents their views with regard to Jews, I reject the fact that so many, uh, that so many, including the president, are are assuming that these two freshman members represent the Democratic Party on these issues. They don't, and I reject it. How about the polls that you see where, you know, there's a huge difference between support for Israel among Republicans and Democrats? You know, some of the polls I've seen anywhere between 40 and 50 point difference. How do you, how do you respond to that? Well, first of all, if you're referring to like the Pew polls, I, I do question, and others others have questioned the way that they even poll this issue because they 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 force they force those who answer this question to make a binary choice. Do you have sympathy with the Israelis or sympathy with the Palestinians? As if as if the world is so black and white, and one cannot exist somewhere in the gray. Right? One can have sympathies. You know, if, 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 how, if that's how we define our views on a very complicated issue, uh, perhaps with both at the same time and then, you know, align more with one or whatever it might be. I, I honestly reject the premise of some of these questions. But polling is very important. And we've also done our polling. We uh, we conducted a poll in October of 2018 um, and we looked at issues related to Israel and we polled 800 Jewish voters and 92% of them said they considered themselves pro-Israel. And 68% uh, of them defined themselves as Democrats. 74% said they were going to support Democrats in the midterms. We know that number was actually higher. In the end, in November, it ended up being 79% supported Democrats. But interestingly, 59% of them said that they disagreed with some of the current Israeli government's policies. So what does all that information mean? What it says is that the Jewish electorate is pro-Israel, considers itself pro-Israel, but they're defining it themselves. That doesn't necessarily mean that they agree with every single thing that the current Israeli government does, just as I am a patriot and I don't agree with everything the Trump administration does. Mm -hmm. I can also be pro-Israel, not agree with everything that this that the Israeli government does, but also that we know Jewish voters were confident in where Democrats were on Israel, and they were voting on a wide range of issues, uh, mostly domestic policy issues. The number one issue for Jewish voters in the midterm election was health care. Yeah, yeah, a lot of other issues besides Israel. The second issue was Social Security and Medicare. The third issue mm -hmm. was the Supreme Court. We can go down Supreme the list. Court and Only 20% of those polled said that the most important issue was Israel. Right, right. And on that issue, I mean, uh, are you concerned that this anti-Israel animus that has been flourishing on campuses for the past decade or so, that's not based on criticism of policies, but rather really just an anti-Israel, sort of a delegitimization uh, of Israel and demonization in certain cases, uh, which has maligned the, the Israel brand. I mean, eventually, a lot of these Jewish 
college kids who've been hearing all this stuff for years, they're going to end up in leadership positions and they're going to be in the Democratic Party and so forth. I mean, with time, do you think this, the bond is going to erode between Israel and Democrats, Democratic Jews in America? Because so, that's a big concern. That yeah, I, I mean, you lot. raised a lot of issues. Definitely, we are concerned about uh, the rise of BDS, the BDS movement in general. We strongly oppose BDS, and we're concerned about what we see as, uh, you know, the um, the rise of BDS, especially on college campuses. We are concerned about uh, millennials. We're, we're looking at that group of, uh, of of Jews specifically and their views on Israel. This this will be the subject of a future poll. Uh, so. I, I think, I think again, though, what is the reason behind it? You know, there are probably many factors, but one of them, again, is this effort by the president to politicize this issue and personalize it, to make the U.S.-Israel relationship all about him and Netanyahu and all about, you know, his presidency and the Republican Party, when we know that's just not how Jews see it. In fact... You know, despite his claims, the Republican Party has actually lost Jewish support since he's been president. And to go back to polling, because I just think it's important to speak about facts. If you look at, if you look at the polls, um, the exit polling from the 2014 midterms to today, in 2014, 33% of Jews supported Republicans. In 2016. 24% of Jews supported Trump. In 2018, 17% of Jews supported Republicans. So what does that tell us? His presidency has led to Republicans, Republican Jews even, leaving the party, not supporting Republican candidates in this midterm, which we also saw in our polling. And that is because his policies are so antithetical to our values. So this is a deep concern. It's having an impact. It's definitely having an impact with younger voters as well. Uh, just about the way issue Israel and U.S.-Israel ties are perceived. If they make it all about Trump, I mean, this is going to be a problem. Trump is not liked in our community. And, you know, I tell my friends on the right all the time, we desperately need people like you because you you're are Israel lovers, Israel supporters, you know, clearly in the democratic liberal camp. And if there's going to be, if we're not, if we're going to keep a connection with the new generation of millennials, you know, who ha who've been raised with so much of that BDS energy, that anti-Israel energy, you know, I, I was on a panel with a millennial from If Not Now last Friday. And, you know, the definition of supporting Israel is really sort of very, very, very much against anti-occupation and so forth. I don't see any of the complexity that I hear from you, which is the, I love Israel, I don't support some of the policies. And I'm wondering, do you have a relationship with some of these groups, like If Not Now and even, you know, Jewish Voices for Peace, these groups that they won't even say they're Zionist, yeah. they, you know? We, we but they're clearly don't. in the Democrat camp and not in the Republican camp. Yeah, you know, we, we don't. I think that our policies on these issues are just quite far off. But we do have good relationships with some of the more mainstream organizations like working what? on these issues. Uh, you know, we, we talk with, with all the organizations. J Street? Right? Sure, APAC, ADL, uh, AJC. I mean, 
you know, the mainstream organizations where, where there is uh, what I would consider to be a lot of, um, to the extent that our missions, you know, overlap to some degree, you know, we, we talk about that, especially with regard to fighting anti-Semitism, fighting hate crimes, uh, fighting, uh, you know, opposing BDS. So where, where there's just going to be too much of a difference, no, there's not like a, a natural alignment with us and, you know, an organization like Jewish Voices for Peace, because we just really don't see eye to eye much. But, and because again... Because it's not about criticism of policies. Well, again, our, our mission is driven by values, not solely by the lens of politics. Mm -hmm. It's that Democrats, we believe, share our values. But if an organization or a candidate, for that matter, or, or even a Democrat, doesn't share our values, and I would say Jewish Voices for Peace doesn't. Uh, but, you we're know, not groups like If Not Now, they use the same uh, argument. You know, on Friday she was saying, yeah, no, what? this is Jewish values, and I'm promoting yeah. Jewish values when I... <laughs> When and, you in know, creating their movement, that's that's fine. And you know, perhaps perhaps there are some issues that we can agree on. But you asked if we're if we're coordinating with them or working with them. We're not. Um, but I do think it is important to build coalitions to work with other organizations. Uh, but those and how about two, J Street? Listen, we we as an organization are just fundamentally different from all the organizations that you've mentioned so far, um, because. Those organizations are ostensibly nonpartisan, even if they're perceived to be partisan. They're awesome. not. They're not. APAC's not partisan. J Street's not partisan. None of them are partisan. And those are Israel organizations, all of them. We are an explicitly partisan organization that has a values-driven agenda. And one of our values is support of the U.S.-Israel relationship. Right. So we're not, but we're not just an Israel organization. Oh, so we sure. are different. And so we, we, we have a distinct voice. Um, but going back to this issue, because when you were talking about it, I, I thought to myself, I want to come back to this. The issue of college campuses and, um, you know, intersectionality and all of that, you know, we saw this with the Women's March. Mm -hmm. And as an organization, this is a good example. I think those, those Women's March leaders are Democrats, right? But what we saw from them left uh, left us feeling, uh, first of all, marginalized from a movement that we so badly wanted to be a part of. I was mm -hmm. at the march in 2017 on the mall. It was great. I, I was energized. I thought I was marching for equality. I thought I was mar marching against intolerance. And that meant intolerance, uh, you know, whether it was anti-Semitism or racism or Islamophobia or uh, certainly misogyny. Um, I was marching for all those things. But to see for women who essentially hijacked a movement and didn't include Jewish women in it and had said such anti-Semitic things, I didn't care that they were Democrats. We called on them to step Good down. Good for you. Good for you. I, I remember that. Yeah, we called on yeah. them to step down before everyone else did, right? We called on them to step down in 2018, before it was the eve of the march. Uh, and, and it's really disappointing to see that they still haven't. Um, but considering that Jews are so liberal when you think of... You know, those Jewish lawyers that hitchhiked to Mississippi in the 60s and fought for civil rights. And when you think of the history of Jews in America and how much they have done for social justice and so forth, we're at the cutting edge, at the forefront of so much of social activism in America for the past hundred years. How do you explain that you would not be welcomed in, in the Women's March? How do you explain that? You, shouldn't you be on the front of the line, Haley? Uh, <laughs> These are your well, you know, I think I sisters. think sisters. 
I, I, I felt that I, I was very much included in what was a movement. And there were, you know, I don't know the exact number, hundreds of thousands of us in January of 2017. I even returned in 2018. Uh, I, I think what what we shouldn't what we shouldn't assume is that those four women define this movement. But unfortunately, as leaders, they, they did kind of somewhat hijack it. Uh, but uh, it was really failed leadership on their part to explicitly ex- you know, exclude and marginalize Jewish women to align themselves with someone that ADL has identified as Americans leading anti-Semite Louis Farrakhan, uh, mm-hmm. and to do so many other things. We don't need to go through the list. Those are four women who didn't exercise the kind of leadership that they should have. That said, you know, that movement is still something uh, to the extent that we can depersonalize it and not make it about those women uh, is still something we believe in. Mm -hmm. And as soon as there's better leadership, more inclusive leadership, uh, leadership that, you know, brings everyone to the table, uh, I can we would we'd be back there. We believe in it. Um, but again, this is this is not about uh, about Democrats, right? And 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 frankly, you know, you, you keep referring to me as or, or us as like liberals. We're this, we're that. I actually I, I don't define liberal myself. values. I well, we you know when when I talk about values, I talk about I talk about Jewish values. But you know, and again, I'm, Isn't I'm that defining about the same? it. Jewish values. I am values. defining that as socially progressive, mm-hmm. pro-Israel. Uh, and, and really principled values that include human rights, the defense of human rights, you know, giving voice to the voiceless, uh, ensuring which is uh, what those marches were about intolerance. Um, and these were values that were instilled in me at a young age. I um, I think last time we spoke, I talked about uh, you know my first foray in politics in 1987 was attending the March for Soviet Jews and my parents, right. and you know. In the same way that I marched there for values, and that wasn't about politics. Uh, you know, it's those values. So I, I have found that the majority of Democrats, certainly our Democratic leadership and the overwhelming majority of Democrats, share those values, certainly more than Republicans, especially here in the age of Trump. But again, um, we're not going to support any Democrat, they have to share our values. You know, there's a school of thought that says things have changed in the past 50 years, that we live in a time now where you were mentioning intersectionality, uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, a time when victimhood has been, like, elevated, um, and white privilege and white patriarchy and so forth. And I wonder if Jews have been sort of caught in this trap because we have the image of being successful, quote-unquote, white, powerful uh we don't fit in this movement of sort of victims we don't we make lousy victims <laughs> well and, and i wonder if that's a uh if, if we're being penalized in a in a sense when you look at those four women leaders and they and they look at jews and you know i'm trying to explain i'm trying to understand in my mind how you would reject you know, uh, Jewish activist from from a march like that, and then and I, I wonder if we're seen as being too white, too successful, too powerful. I wonder if I that's definitely, part of it. I definitely worry about the rise of anti-Semitism in this country, whether it's increased hate crimes or you know the, these perceptions of Jews' influence. Uh, I don't want to overstate, just as I don't want to overstate the role of those two freshman members of Congress, I don't want to overstate the role of those four women uh, because. 
you know, I think I think most people at this point can agree that they have failed as leaders of a movement because they have failed to create an inclusive movement. Mm-hmm. Um, but you but know, somehow regard, it's always the Jews that get excluded. You know, well, I wouldn't say that. I think a lot of groups feel excluded and targeted at this moment. They do, and if you look at, like, for example, um, what occurred uh, after Pittsburgh, right after this horrific horrific uh, tragedy affecting our community. Um, what was so encouraging to, to give some, you know, a positive spin here, if, po- if possible, after a terrible tragedy, was to see the outpouring of support from so many other religious and other minority communities for the Jewish community. And frankly, after the horrific events in New Zealand recently, to see us as a Jewish community express support for the Muslim community, because there's no question that many communities feel targeted in this current moment in our history. Uh, I, I, I don't know that there's any one reason, but there is definitely uh, there is definitely a rise of hatred and divisiveness that we can't tolerate. So I think it's important that we as Jews lead with our values, that we speak out against intolerance in all of its forms, whether it's anti-Semitism or Islamophobia mm-hmm. or racism. Because we have to, yes, we are being targeted, but I think one of the best ways to try to combat that, in addition to having an administration that did more, and I wish we had seen that, uh, or would see that, uh, is to lead with our values, and that is about combating intolerance in all of its forms. So how do you define success in your job? Well, again, you know, I think in this moment, and I'm, I'm very, you know, very much focused on on responding to the litany of attacks that we saw from the president over the weekend, just because it was you know less than forty eight hours ago. Um, I, I read the statement. I I really really would like to see us get through this election cycle without Israel once again being used by Republicans Weaponized. as a wedge issue to divide us. Because the truth is mm-hmm. that. All of the candidates share, I think, a, a support of the U.S.'s relationship, opposition to BDS. I mean, there's not a lot of division there. But what the re- president and Republicans are trying to do is create divisions. Mm-hmm. I don't want to see Israel divide uh, divide us as a community. I don't want to see Israel divide us as, as Democrats because I think that there are just so many fundamental principles that we agree on. And, and the bottom line is that we want to see Israel remain a bipartisan issue. Um, but, you know, success ultimately is going to be defined by, uh, the kind of political change that's aligned with our values. We saw that in the house in 2018. Uh, our goal is to see it with the Senate and the white house in 2020. And again, it's not just about which party's in power. It's also about the kind of leadership. And, you know, the, the leadership we have in the House now, we feel is aligned with our values. We want to see that in the Senate and the White House. And we believe that it's a Democrat in the White House that could bring that kind of change about. Uh, and I want to see uh, the Senate uh, controlled by Democrats as well. Well, you know, let's play it out for a second. If uh, the famous Trump peace plan whenever it gets announced, uh, if it's in the direction of a two-state solution or things that the Democratic Party has supported over the years, what will be the reaction of your organization? 
we support a two-state solution. If he's going to come forward with um, with a, a peace plan that's going to bring about a two-state solution, I think I think his plan is going to talk a lot more about regional actors than we've seen in the past. I don't think this is going to be like a you know, Clinton parameters 2.0. I think it's going right. to be very different. But we'll we'll take a look. We're mm-hmm. open-minded to seeing what... I know that, um, you know, Jonathan Greenblatt has been working hard on this. He, I know he's he's actually in, in the region... Or he's here in California, I think, talking about it today. Yeah, he was um, sitting where you were. Oh, great. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're open to hearing about it. I mean, we want to see, uh, you know, a two-state solution. Now, they, I... I applaud them for trying. I mean, a lot of people have tried in the past. Uh, I had never seen anyone try harder than uh, John Kerry, frankly, uh, in the Obama administration. I don't think he gets enough credit. Uh, but uh, for years, uh, they they tried uh, for that. But, you know, we we as Americans uh, have tried many times, and we can't do it alone. This is There, there are three parties involved here. Uh, and in the absence of uh, Israeli leadership that wants wants uh, to see such a plan come about and and if they are dealing with Palestinians uh, a Palestinian leadership this is going to be essential we you can't you can't wish it upon uh, mm-hmm. wish it upon the parties if if you could uh, Clinton uh, Clinton and Rabin might have brought it about long ago so uh, you know I think I think you, you need all three parties involved uh, but I am definitely open to hearing what the what the contours of this plan look like, and mm-hmm. I uh, applaud them for trying. Mm-hmm. If it's going to bring about peace, we're supportive. So, uh, just pretend I'm I'm a presidential candidate, you know, Cory Booker, or whoever, and you know, Israel does something that's not very popular. Um, how do you talk to me to keep my support for Israel in the guise of policies that are not popular? whether it's the nation-state law or annexing settlements and so forth, because that's part of what you do, correct? To keep Israel as a bipartisan issue, you reach out to future potential leaders, including Kamala Harris, uh, because I've had conversations with political consultants for these candidates, and they ask me, Dave, how how do I sell Israel? They're, you know, they're pissed. They hear all the bad news, right, about what Bibi does. So... And I, this is not a rhetorical question, because I know you're such a strong supporter of Israel. How do you convey that? Well, again, I think it's important. To, um, to transcend politics? It is. Again, mm-hmm. this. I'm going to just keep saying it, because it, <laughs> I think it if bears the values, repeating. Because if, if, the if, relationship if, if, should not be politicized or personalized. This relationship is not about Trump and Netanyahu. Right, but even if they violate Jewish values, I'm talking so they if, being Israel. If the Israeli government is enacting policies that are just fundamentally misaligned with what we consider to be whether it's Jewish, Jewish values or American values even, then, you know, and we've seen it happen. We saw it happen with the alignment with this, um, you know, the uh, Yudid Otsma. Right. It's, you know, I think you're going to see a lot of people speaking out. Um, but let's wait to see. You have an Israeli election tomorrow. I certainly wouldn't want to prejudge or uh, or even weigh in on that election. The Israeli people have the right to elect whomever they want. Mm-hmm. Uh, as an American Jew, uh, Donald Trump, I don't vote in that election. Uh, it's not my prime minister. And so let's see uh, who they elect. And, uh, you know, whoever they elect is going to, I think, be embraced by by whomever um, ends up being the candidate because they recognize that no matter who the who the leader of, uh, you know, of the Israeli government is, someone we're going to have to work with. Right. And they'll find a way. Right. We've done this. We've done it before. Mm-hmm. 
Um, there was a brilliant piece by uh, Yossi Kleiner-Levy this week in Globe and Mail, and he talked about how critical it was to maintain Israel's democracy and how incredibly difficult it was, that the real miracle of Israel is its ability to, in the, in the context of this really hostile and dangerous neighborhood, that they were still able not just to survive or to do startup nation or so forth, but to really maintain a free and open and democratic society. That's the real miracle of Israel, that they've been able to do that in, in that neighborhood. And he says, you can't take that miracle for granted. And right now it's under siege. The democratic part of that, of Israel is under siege. And especially with the recent pronouncements from Prime Minister Netanyahu. So it's really a moment of truth in Israel. And, and he also explains how um, the idea of security is so all-encompassing in Israel. So he talks about what happens uh, if Israel would leave the West Bank and then Israel would be surrounded by Iran-supported, potentially terrorist entities if, uh, if the Palestinian state would become ra radicalized. And this is like really serious stuff. It's not sort of, um, you know, arbitrary or, or what have you. So when you see Israelis who make choices that lean towards, you know, security, right wing, there's some logic behind it. And it's going to be incredibly difficult to keep the democratic part of the equation. And he even mentions how democracy can also be part of the problem, the danger. You know, he gives the example of a lawyer who, you know, works with the army and when you're allowed to shoot back and so forth. So the democratic norms themselves can be part of the danger. So it's a very, very complicated and enormous challenge to keep the democratic part of the equation. I call it like having two children. And one child is I want to stay alive and stay safe. And the other child is I want to stay a democracy. And you don't want to choose between both. You need both. Mm -hmm. And 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 it's a it's a dilemma that I'm not sure a lot of American Jews really appreciate. They don't, but you know, I think um, I think I just gave we, you my whole column for this week. Oh, good. Well, yeah. you know, and you, you've previewed it for your <laughs> listeners as well. Uh, spoiler alert. I think, I think, um, you know, I, it's it's important that we distinguish, frankly, between American Jews and the Israeli electorate. Mm -hmm. We are two fundamentally different uh, people. We have we do have ties, but we are prioritizing going to the polls, voting on a fundamentally different set of issues. Mm -hmm. um, and if you look even at like the polling numbers for for Trump in Israel, it's 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 exactly the opposite of the numbers here. I mentioned, you know, his very low support among the American Jewish community. I know I know it's quite high in Israel, and that's because we're prioritizing different issues. But again, there's there's a respect for their democratic process. They're going to choose who they choose. Uh, I think it's important also, you mentioned this issue of, you know, which is always front and center for Israelis, uh, the security concerns that they have, and the Iranian threat, which I know for Netanyahu, uh, you know, very much defines his worldview. Um, and, uh, you know, something I mentioned earlier, this hypocrisy that we have seen in terms of um, anti-Semitism, the rise of anti-Semitism, and how Republicans are so quick to call it out when it happens on the Democratic side, but completely silent when it happens on their side of the aisle. 
You know, similarly, there has been a strange silence when Trump, who, you know, is assumed to be, and I disagree with this, such a great president for Israel, when he does things that are fundamentally not in Israel's interest either. Uh, Like what? Like his announcement via tweet in December of 2018 that he was going to withdraw 2,000 U.S. troops from Syria when Mm -hmm. they were almost single-handedly preventing Iran from having a land bridge between Tehran and the Mediterranean. Now, I know that's not in Israel's interest, right? Mm-hmm. I, because I've, I've been to Israel, I've heard them talk about their concern with regard to Iran's, uh, Iran's role in Syria. Yet a, a, silence. A lot of pro-Trump silence. Uh, friends of mine were really upset. And just, okay, well, they did yeah. so very quietly. Mm-hmm. Silence. And from Netanyahu, too. When, you know, in the, I mean, I was in the Obama administration, every single thing Obama did, and we certainly saw it front and center at the, uh, you know, Netanyahu's address before the uh, joint session of Congress, uh, you know, they were willing to (laughs) very openly discuss their differences, right? Uh, I think what we see here is this this strange silence again because well, this relationship. I remember that I remember those days. I think there was a thinking that he's going to pull back on it. He just spoke impulsively, um, and it turns out that he's kept the presence. Correct. That. Well, what happened was he. Uh, I think his you know his national security advisor uh, Bolton. John Bolton had to go clean up his mess. Right. Um, like so many things he's tweeted, uh, you know his policies like by decree it lacked uh, deliberation. Um, it lacked uh, consultation with his administration. It was also connected with his ego because he figured if I announce that, then I can show off that I beat ISIS. He he saw that. He saw the two as connected. uh, Sure, but that's also a false narrative of (laughs) defeating ISIS. It's superficial. But it's important to to point out because there there is this... But besides that, though, what did he do that's against Israel? Willful blindness. Well, I actually think that what he's done in recent weeks has not been good in terms of Israel's democracy. I think, for example... He's putting his thumb on the scale of this election. And just as I said that we as Americans need to... Well, he said they're both good people, right? Like when he spoke in Vegas, they're two good people. He did say that. I I saw that. But, you know, he has... um, He's done things such as, you know, the recognition of Israeli sovereignty over the Golan. Okay, nobody was questioning Israeli control over the Golan. We don't question Israeli control over the Golan. Nobody was. (laughs) But... To make this announcement in this vacuum, to reverse decades and decades of U.S. policy two weeks before an Israeli election with no other reason besides what appeared to be a transparent political calculation on the part of the U.S. president to help the prime minister win re-election, you have to wonder, what, what, is this an attempt by the president to somehow influence this election? And that, that's concerning. That's concerning. Again, whomever the Israelis elect is is there. This is a democracy. They will elect, but they should do so free from any intervention, including from a U.S. president. Uh, so you know, we're, I'm concerned about that. Um, and and again, there appears to be a a silence uh, when it comes to anything that Trump does uh, that could be perceived as uh, you know not necessarily in Israel's interest. Um, How about Jerusalem? So Jerusalem, similarly, I, you know, nobody's questioning that, well, we are not questioning that Jerusalem's the capital of Israel. 
uh, and you know the but that was our, not the U.S. To embassy. The Israeli elections. The U.S. embassy should be uh, located in the capital, and you know we didn't we didn't question fundamentally the the move. We questioned the timing. We questioned the lack of strategy that went into that decision, and we questioned the fact that it was completely politicized. We know many Democrats. Uh, members of Congress wanted to be there, for example, for the opening. Once once he decided that he was going to do it, uh, you know, I think most uh, most members of Congress, uh, Democrats and Republicans, wanted to be a part of it. They supported it. They had, you know, we had been signing this waiver every six months since 1995, and now that the embassy was going to be moved again, while you didn't, while we didn't agree necessarily with the with the timing or the strategy behind it. In the end, it ended up being very politicized. No Democrats were invited. And our U.S. ambassador used his diplomatic perch, a perch that should not be used for politics, to say very political things, such as touting the so-called Republican support of Israel, right? Again, politicizing and personalizing this relationship, which is dangerous. Right. I mean, there was criticism for President Obama during the elections that he also did it. But that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> whole other podcast. So, Haley. Who's going to be in the White House 2020? You're not allowed to say. I, I really don't know. <laughs> I it's don't. so up in the air, isn't I it? don't know. But you know, this is a good problem to have because I think that we have phenomenal candidates. I have heard that your former boss is might end up in the White House. Kamala she Harris. She may. If you that, never know. If that's the case, she's going to make you an incredible offer. <laughs> <laughs> I I think that this this role that I currently have, uh, I've got my work cut out for me. Are you loving this job? I love it. Really? I love it. You've never you haven't done this particular job, right? This is very much I've community driven. I've actually only worked in government. Right. This is my first job outside of government, and I didn't want Donald Trump to be the reason I left government. I wasn't going to let him uh, change my trajectory, but of course, you know, you recalibrate. And uh, what I realized going into the midterms in 2018 is I could do a lot more to help reshape the composition of Congress than I could even advising one phenomenal member of Congress. So, um, Any surprises in the job? Uh I have been surprised by the degree to which this narrative about Jewish voters in general mm. has uh, been inserted into the. In some ways, it's good because it gives us opportunities it's to so speak. It's so true. Up. It's caught us all but by surprise. I, I, you know, I've never seen so much interest in the Jewish electorate this early in a um, in a presidential campaign. Uh, you know, I mean, just the fact that the president would be tweeting about it, uh, again, mm -hmm. I don't see that as good at all, but uh, especially when it's it's none of it's true. You're right but at the nerve center of this issue with I, your organization. It has been surprising. Um, at the same time, you know, we're having even this discussion today. These are conversations that need to be had. And mm -hmm. uh, I think it's important to have it. I, I think it's important to remain principled. Um and, uh, you know, to speak out. Give me an example of the kind of people you meet in, the, in your job. Uh, Donors? Well, you know, we, <laughs> we're an organization that relies on, on, uh, on the support of, uh, of others, so sure. But I think, I think some, of the, um, some of the most inspiring work is, is actually with younger Jews. Um, so I, um, I spoke at APAC. Uh, and by the way, there was no Democratic boycott of APAC. Uh, so just to clarify, clarify for the record, I spoke at APAC, yeah. and I spoke on a panel about women, women leaders. I mean, I am one of the few um, 
women leading a Jewish organization whose mission is not solely focused on women. Um, and I spoke about uh, women's leadership, and you know it has been so inspiring to see so many women elected to Congress. So we, we talked a lot about that and what went into that, um, and the importance of, uh, of supporting each other as women, speaking out and, and giving voice to our values. And in the aftermath of that, I, I did receive a lot of feedback from some younger women who, who were there, uh, who, you know, again, due to so many of these false narratives that are out there, didn't didn't see or didn't know that there could be a place, uh, for example, for progressive Jewish pro-Israel women in the Democratic Party. For mm-hmm. whatever reason, they, they just hadn't, they didn't know about JDCA, clearly, but they, they just, especially in the aftermath of what occurred with Omar and, you know, how it was portrayed in the media, uh, you know, it was a dark moment for us uh, as Jews. And I think it was important. Um, it's important, especially uh, that we that we continue to give voice to these values and ensure that people feel included in this movement. Um, so it is younger Jewish voters that I'm speaking to that I find very inspiring, not just limited to women. Um, and, you know, you mentioned this challenge that we might have with millennials. I think there's a lot of hope there as well. Um, and we do know that younger voters in general turned out in these midterms at a rate of 10% higher than they did in 2014. Uh, they understand that, uh, you know, that voting matters. I think 2016 really brought that home for people. And they understand the impact uh, that that those who they elect can have on their lives, whether, you know, whether it's someone who shares their values or not. Um, So we are trying to continue to see this kind of engagement from younger voters. Uh, They are our future. And we as an organization uh, announcing today for the first time on your podcast, we are creating a next generation leadership council. Nice. To engage that generation because it is so important to what we do. Shiny, we got a scoop. She's you got a scoop. Me, Get some scoops. <laughs> Amazing. It looks like you love your job. This is I like do. the perfect job for you. <laughs> I, this, this, is, this is a great job. So if somebody wanted to find out more, it would jdca.com? Would no. I don't me. know what jdca.com will take you to, so don't go there. <laughs> uh, jewishdems.org. All right. Jewishdems.org. J-E-W-I-S-H-D-E-M-S.org. Jewishdems.org. You'll find out everything you want to know about uh, this movement. And when there is a candidate on the Democratic side and you come back in L.A., maybe we can have you again on the podcast. Absolutely. Happy to come back. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you.